Last week, Paul described for us two men and two worlds. He contrasted Adam's world, the world we're born into, with the new world brought about by Christ's work on the cross. Paul told us that Adam's world is the world where sin and death reign. But in Christ's world, grace and life reign. And we enter that world by faith, by holding out our hands to receive God's gift. Now, as we listen to Paul's description of those two worlds, we may have found ourselves thinking, okay, I get it, I understand it, but so what? What difference does this two worlds thing, what, does it make, what difference does it make? Well, Paul is very concerned with that so what question. He began to answer it actually at the beginning of chapter 5. He told us there that Christ's work means we can live every day in the hope of the glory of God. So we already have part of the answer to our so what question. Christ's work means we have a secure future ahead of us. Then in the rest of chapter 5, Paul set out that big overarching truth about the two worlds. And now he comes back to say more about this so what question. What difference does it make to move from Adam's world to Christ's world? It means sin's power has been broken. Just as we can live our daily lives in the hope of future glory, so we can also live in daily freedom from the tyranny of sin. In our passage this morning, that's what Paul wants us to understand. The shattered power of sin. So turn with me to Romans chapter 6. In the Church Bible, it's page 1132, or in the large print, 1751. Romans chapter 6, and we'll read the first 14 verses. What shall we say then? Shall we go on sinning so that grace may increase? By no means. We are those who have died to sin. How can we live in it any longer? Or don't you know that all of us who were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were therefore buried with him through baptism into death, in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too may live a new life. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we will certainly also be united with him in a resurrection like his. For we know that our old self was crucified with him so that the body ruled by sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves to sin because anyone who has died has been set free from sin. Now, if we died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. For we know that since Christ was raised from the dead, he cannot die again. Death no longer has mastery over him. The death he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. 
In the same way, count yourselves dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body so that you obey its evil desires. Do not offer any part of yourself to sin as an instrument of wickedness, but rather offer yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and offer every part of yourself to him as an instrument of righteousness. For sin shall no longer be your master because you are not under the law, but under grace. This is God's word. And Paul is doing two things in this passage. First of all, he is explaining a great truth to us. If we have received God's gift of salvation through faith in Christ, then we are dead to sin and alive to God. Then having explained that truth, Paul calls us to take it in and live it out. He wants us to realize what has happened to us and then live in the light of that. So first, in verses 1 to 10, Paul explains the truth he wants us to understand. If you have crossed from Adam's world to Christ's, then you are dead to sin and alive to God. As Paul is writing, he always has in mind ways people might object to what he's saying. And he starts chapter 6 by responding to one of those objections. He knows some people are going to say, Paul, you've been going on and on about grace and how we can't earn God's favor. But surely, Paul, that just encourages people to sin. Surely, the more they hear about God's grace, the less concerned they're going to be about obeying God and pursuing holiness. Paul, if God's grace is for sinners, then why would we try to be good? It could be that some of us are looking at life that way as Christians. Maybe some of us have taken the truth of God's grace And we've begun to use it as an excuse to wallow in our sin and get comfortable in our sin. I know none of us would ever say it, but we can live that way. We can quietly give up the battle against sin in our lives. And we can justify it to ourselves by saying in our hearts, well, God is gracious. He loved me while I was his enemy. A little sin here and there isn't really a big deal, is it? Well, look what Paul says about this in verse 1. What shall we say then? Shall we go on sinning so that grace may increase? By no means. We are those who have died to sin. How can we live in it any longer? Paul says, if you're thinking that way, don't be ridiculous. When you receive God's gift of salvation, it doesn't give you license to sin. It makes you dead to sin. That is the real relationship between grace and sin. 
But we have to ask, what does it mean to be dead to sin? Well, to understand it, we have to understand what it means to be united with Christ. And that does not simply mean we're on the same team as Christ. It does not simply mean that we share the same viewpoint as Christ. It does not simply mean that when people slander Christ, we get offended on his behalf. All of those things might be true, but the unity Paul is talking about is much more than that. He means that our lives are intertwined with Christ's life. Our existence is bound up with his. One writer gives the example of two trees whose trunks have been knit together. Like this. There's no doubt that those trees are interlocked today. But clearly their histories are interlocked as well. Their unity can be traced way back, for years probably. And Paul is saying that's what has happened with your life and Christ's. When you recognize that his death was for you, that it was your way to forgiveness and life, and when you embrace that good news, then your history became knit together with his. Look how Paul explains it in verse 3. Or don't you know that all of us who were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were therefore buried with him through baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, so we too may live a new life. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we will certainly also be united with him in a resurrection like his. In the early days of the church, faith in Christ and baptism went together like a package. When we read the book of Acts, we see that generally men and women would repent of their sin, believe in Christ, and be baptized all in one go. They heard the apostles preach and they were baptized the same day. So Paul is not saying here that baptism saves us. Talking about baptism is shorthand for repentance and faith and baptism. Baptism was the outward sign of the new spiritual life these people had already received. And that's still what it means today. And Paul's point here is what happens when we receive new life in Christ. We become united, not just with the living Jesus today, but with Jesus' history, with his death, burial, and resurrection. It's as if we were nailed to the cross with him and laid in the tomb with him and walked out of the tomb with him And Paul says, that means we are new people. We have a new life to live. 
When we look at the risen Jesus as he's presented to us in the New Testament, it's very clear that in one sense, he was the same person before and after the cross. But it's also true that he was different. Back in chapter 1, Paul said Jesus was appointed the Son of God in power by his resurrection from the dead. He'd always been the Son of God. But at his resurrection, he received a new status. The New Testament explains that new status in various ways. He was given the name above every name. All things were placed under his feet. He is now head over everything. And the significant thing for you and me to see is, it was not a case of Jesus pretending to be different or acting different after the resurrection. He really was different. And our unity with Christ means we're different too. We may look just the same as we used to look, but we are different. And Paul explains the difference by talking about the dead you and the living you. First, the dead you. Verse 6. For we know that our old self was crucified with him, so that the body ruled by sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves to sin. Because anyone who has died has been set free from sin. What does Paul mean by our old self? Literally, our old man. Is he talking about a part of us? Is he saying part of us was crucified with Christ and we just carry on with what's left? A bit like this. Is that it? No, Paul is saying something much more comprehensive than that. The reality is actually like this. John Stott explains it this way. What was crucified with Christ was not a part of me called my old nature, but the whole of me as I was before I was converted. In verse 6, Paul describes this old self as the body ruled by sin. When we lived in Adam's world, with Adam as our representative, then our minds and wills and our eyes and arms and legs were at the beck and call of sin. Whether it was selfishness or pride or lust or anger or laziness or bitterness, Whatever particular sins they were, they ruled over our words and actions and outlook. We were slaves to sin. Now, we may sometimes have felt the inclination to resist sin, but we didn't have the power. We were under sin's power. We were like a dog who just has to come running when his master whistles. That was our old self. 
But Paul says when we put our trust in Jesus, that old self died. It died as surely as Christ died on the cross. It was buried as surely as Christ was buried in the tomb. Now, does that mean a genuine Christian will never sin again? No, that is not what Paul says. He says our old self was a slave to sin. Our new self is not a slave to sin. In Christ, we are genuinely free not to sin. That doesn't mean we never will sin. But it does mean we can never say, I can't help sinning. We can't say that in despair, and we can't say it as an excuse. In Christ, we do have the power to resist sin. We can flee from temptation. Yes, we all know how hard it can be to resist sin. But the bottom line is, our unity with Christ means that we can resist it. And that simple bottom line changes everything for us. It means we can fight sin knowing sin is not our master. Paul will have plenty to say later about fighting sin. But here, having described the dead you, he turns to the living you. And Paul says two things about the you that has been raised with Christ. You will live eternally and you will live to God. Look at verse 8. Now, if we died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. For we know that since Christ was raised from the dead, he cannot die again. Death no longer has mastery over him. Remember that reality that your life is interlocked with Christ's life. And it will always be that way. The Jesus who rose is the Jesus who will never die again. His death won a victory that never has to be won again. Everywhere else in the world, victory can be short-lived. In the world of sport, the effects of victory are very short-lived. Maybe you win the premiership. But within a couple of months, what happens? The new season starts and you're chasing victory all over again along with everybody else. Maybe you make it to number one in the world rankings for golf or tennis. But in order to stay there for longer than a month or whatever it is, you need new victories. Last week, we've been remembering the victory that came from D-Day. And as great as that victory was, it didn't secure victory forever. New human powers have kept rising in the world. But Jesus' victory was different. By his death and resurrection, he dealt with sin and death fully. 
and for all time. We sang earlier, it's completely done. And if we're united with Christ, we will live with him for all eternity. Physical death cannot separate us from him. On the other side of physical death, the Bible tells us we'll be immediately in his presence. And beyond that, we are assured of a physical resurrection one day to reign with Christ in the new heaven and earth. And notice what we're told about Christ's life today in verse 10. It is to God. In other words, it's for the glory of God. God the Son lives for the glory of God the Father. And remember, our lives are interlocked with the Son. So our lives are also for the glory of the Father. That is the truth Paul has for us in this passage. If we've received God's gracious gift of new life in Christ, then we are dead to sin and alive to God. What's next? Well, just as important as the truth itself is what we do with this truth. And in our final verses, Paul tells us to take it in and live it out. First of all, we have to take it in, verse 11. In the same way, count yourselves dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. Let's be really clear about what Paul means here. He does not mean pretend you're dead to sin and try to live as if it's true. This is not a little cognitive behavioral trick for us to try on ourselves. We are not being summoned to an exercise in imagination. No, Paul is summoning us to recognize the truth. When Paul says, count yourselves dead to sin but alive to God, he's telling us to get this truth into our minds and into our hearts. If Paul was in the U.S., he'd say, do the math. Add up the facts and look at what you've got. The perfect Son of God died as the substitutionary sacrifice for sinners. He won a decisive victory over sin. Sin's tyrannical power is broken. And you are intertwined with Christ. His victory is a reality for you too. Sin's hold on you has been broken. Its power in your life is shattered. Realize that. Recognize it. Believe it. It's the truth. Why is it so important that we recognize this? Simply because if we don't recognize it, its power will remain unactivated in our lives. It will lie dormant in our lives. 
Our union with Christ is true whether we realize it or not. But unless we realize it, we're going to go on living as if we're slaves. Martin Lloyd-Jones gives a great illustration of this. He mentions the slaves in America in the 1800s. Those men and women lived under the power of their masters. But at the end of the Civil War, slavery was abolished. Millions of slaves were declared free. Their status genuinely did change. But the sad fact is, many of them continued to live as if they were slaves. Especially the older ones who'd known a lifetime of slavery. It was as if their freedom never really sank in for them. It was a fact, and they'd heard the announcement of their freedom, but they didn't truly realize what it meant. And so they still cowered and trembled in the presence of their old masters, the former slave owners. Those former owners had no authority over them anymore. But that reality never seemed to dawn on some former slaves. They never quite took it in. And so their lives never really changed. The point is that as Christians, we can be just like that with sin. It has no authority over us. But we can live in denial of that. That's why Paul says, count yourselves dead to sin. If you and I are Christians, then there are two reasons why we sin. And the first reason is that we either have not realized or we have forgotten who we are. When the opportunity to sin stands in front of me, like one of those former slave masters in America, when sin comes and tries to command me, I do not have to do sin's bidding. It has no power over me. If I do serve it, it's because I haven't done the math. I haven't added up the sum of Christ's victory. I haven't let God's emancipation proclamation sink into my heart. And there is a second reason why you and I sin as Christians. We sin because we don't make the effort to actively resist sin. We get comfortable with sin. A couple of years ago, I was sure we had a rat in the house. I could hear it scratching around in the night, and I went to great lengths over a period of weeks to try and find it. I pulled up floorboards, some of which I couldn't get down again. I put down traps under those floorboards and on top of those floorboards. I poked around between our bedroom ceiling and the floor of my study, and I couldn't sleep when I heard that thing scurrying around in the night. But then one day, as Megan was coming home, and as she was walking up our front path, 
she saw a little bird disappear into a hole just under our roof, above our bedroom. Now, I'm sure that I should have figured it out long before. The chirping sounds should have given the game away, really. (laughs) But eventually, we had the evidence. It was just a bird building a nest. And at that point, the whole situation changed for me. We still had an animal scratching around in our ceiling. But I stopped all of my efforts to get rid of it. And I didn't lose any more sleep over it. And every year when the nest is empty for a while, I always think I should block up that hole before next year. But I never get round to it. The thought of having a rat in the house just repulsed me. But having a bird, it's kind of cute. It doesn't bother me at all. And we can get like that with our sin too. We just get comfortable with it. We end up treating sin in our lives like a harmless little bird. Instead of the filthy rat it actually is. We stop looking on sin as an intruder in our lives. And we just start seeing it as normal. And here in Romans 6, having told us that we are free from sin's power and having encouraged us to take in that truth, now Paul calls us to go to war against sin. Look again at verse 12. Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body so that you obey its evil desires. Do not offer any part of yourself to sin as an instrument of wickedness, but rather offer yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and offer every part of yourself to him as an instrument of righteousness. It's very clear from what Paul says here that although sin's power has been broken, it is very possible for you and me to live under its reign. Paul would not say in verse 12, do not let sin reign, unless it was a possibility that we might let sin reign. If we're Christians, then we are not in Adam anymore. But we can still live as if we are. We can live in denial of who we really are. We can give in to the old temptations, the old ways of thinking and living the old influences, the old lies. The power of those things has been broken in our lives, but they haven't gone away. Our old master is still prowling around. John Wesley said, sin no longer reigns, but it does remain. And it will be only too happy to reign if we will let it. Sin will be happy to command us if we will submit to it. Just like one of those American former slave owners, strutting around, hoping he can still get his former slaves to obey him. 
You and I have the ability not to give in, but we have to exercise that ability. We have to resist our old master. And in fact, we are to go on the offensive against him. In verse 13, Paul says, Do not offer any part of yourself to sin, not your body, not your mind, not your strength and energy, not your sense of humor, and not your creative abilities. And notice how Paul immediately follows that up with a positive command. It's not just resist, but rather offer yourselves to God. Offer every part of yourself to him. What does that mean? Well, if you have a likable personality, for example, or an ability to persuade others, do not use those things to manipulate others into doing what you want. When you do that, you're serving your old master. Instead, offer your personality to God to encourage others and point them to Jesus. If you're blessed with good amounts of energy, don't waste that energy on sin. Invest it in Christ's kingdom. If you have an ingenious, problem-solving mind, do not use it to deceive people and cover your sinful tracks in life. Offer that ability to God. Use your ingenuity to help others overcome challenging situations in their lives. If you're creative, don't be creative in sin. Be creative in righteousness. Many of the most artistically gifted people in this world are using their talents to serve sin. They are creative in taking sin to new depths and presenting it more explicitly than ever before. If you're a Christian, do the opposite. Serve God with your talent. Find new ways to display beauty and to glorify God's truth. Be creative in what is pure, lovely, and admirable. If you've got a scientific mind, don't use it to serve atheism or to serve your own ambition. Use it to help us understand how God's world works. Have that as your motivation and goal. In unity with Christ, you are dead to sin. You are alive to God. Take in that truth and live it out. And as you do, be assured of victory. Look finally at verse 14. For sin shall no longer be your master, because you are not under the law, but under grace. Paul has just called us to put in serious effort to resist sin. But he immediately wants to remind us where our real hope lies. 
It's not in our own effort, finally, as necessary as that is. Our hope rests ultimately in God's power. And because of God's power, we can be confident sin will not be our master. We can go to war against sin with the assurance of victory. Is it going to be easy? No. But if we fight, we will win. Paul's explanation here is that we are not under the law, but under grace. And he will have much more to say about this in the passages to come. But here his point is, very simply, we are not condemned to try obeying God in our own strength, only to feel and have the law expose our inability. That's what it was like trying to obey God in our old self when we were allied with Adam. But now, with Christ, God's grace provides us with the power we need. Sin will no longer be our master because our new master is with us in the fight against sin. Let's pray.